Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. Today's show is all about one of Appalachia's most critical natural resources, fierce women. Like, what happens when two women combine Appalachian and Chinese folk music? One sort of myth of America is that we're new, that we're invented. It's just simply uh, not true. There's so much about our folk music that comes from our immigrant cultures. We also meet the woman behind a family-owned black newspaper in Virginia. Claudia Whitworth has published the Roanoke Tribune for decades. After 80 years, her paper is still going strong. I said every front page of his paper would have murders, rapes, something. And I said, why on earth would you do something like this when that's what people think of us anyhow, you know? And we meet a 26-year-old community activist named Rosemary Ketchum, who ran for city council and became West Virginia's first transgender person to win elected office. When a person who grew up in Wheeling, uh, raising a family, working full-time, can no longer afford to live in the city they grew up in, something needs to change. You'll hear these stories and more this week Inside Appalachia. Welcome Inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. I'm excited to be here guest hosting this episode. Today's show is all about fierce women, something we have no shortage of here in Appalachia. The song we're hearing is a folk song arrangement by Abigail Washburn and Wu Fei. Their new album combines the tones of Appalachia with the melodies of China. But their musical collaboration actually began with a friendship. They told their story to Lizzie Peabody, host of the Smithsonian Institution's podcast called Side Door. Here's an excerpt from that show. It is recording. Okay, now I'm gonna. Now I'm do- moving the bridge now to do fine tuning. Wu Fei grew up in Beijing and began her musical training before she really had any say in the matter. One night when Fei was just two years old, two music teachers came to her house to join her family at dinner. And then they tested uh, my bones, touched my fingers. Uh, and then to see if my this area, you know, where the openness. Yeah, between your thumb and your forefinger. Yeah, <laughs> to see if they're wide enough. They're not wide enough. If, you know, physically, then I'm not qualified to play an instrument. Wow. So they tested it, and then they thought um, it was good quality. <laughs> and then um, they tested my pitches and tested my rhythms. And then they said, yeah, she, she's got something, and then we could move on to the next step. Unlike in the U.S., where kids might screech on the recorder or groan along on the cello as part of a middle school music class, Faye had to be chosen to play her instrument, a 2,500-year-old Chinese harp called the guzheng. At the time, music teachers in Beijing were so reliant on their reputation, they only wanted to take on students with professional grade potential. Luckily for Faye, she was one of those students. But she says she didn't always feel so lucky. You know, I hated it really as a child because I could hear my neighbors playing basketball and playing soccer outside, and I was like locked in. Like they really locked me in the house because they both were working parents. It was a lot of struggle. You know, as a five-year-old, my minimum practice hours was two hours a day, like solid, seven days a week for 10 solid years. Like the only time I didn't practice because I got sick. That's the only time. I was allowed to not practice. So, yeah, it was a really um, difficult childhood. 
But her years of practice ultimately paid off. When Fei was 15, she was one of just 13 kids in all of China to be accepted into a program at the China Conservatory of Music. Then, six years later, in 2000, she enrolled in university in Texas, where she earned a very different musical education. The first time I landed, I was like, wow, it's so flat. Wow, the clouds are so low. And it's so human. My hair is so thick. So it was, a, it was really, a, really kind of fun. And then when I started school, the first thing that blew my mind was to see West African um, Ghanaian drumming and dance ensemble. And that was actually the first um, mind-blowing experience in America. From there, Faye experienced music from India, electronic music, and jazz. After graduating, she traveled around the U.S. playing her kujong in California and New York with a lot of different musicians she'd never meet in China. And then in Colorado, that's where I met Abby. Meanwhile, Abigail had not been training intensely from the time that she was a young child. She grew up in suburban Chicago, but went to college in Colorado, where she picked up the banjo. But what she was really interested in learning was Chinese. Right. I was in college when I started studying Chinese after my freshman year. And I was so impacted by how different Chinese culture was and how it made my mind work in new ways. Washburn said she originally planned to become a lawyer and thought her Chinese language skills would help her career. But before she went very far down that road, she went on a road trip to Appalachia. Of course, she brought her banjo. And quick aside, in case you're fuzzy on Appalachia, it's the slice of the U.S. that rides the ridge of the Appalachian Mountains. It includes West Virginia and parts of 12 other states, from New York all the way south to Georgia. What about that part of the United States speaks to you? That was inspired by having friends in college who uh, were in love with bluegrass music and I would follow them around to their gigs, and one night at a party, someone put on a record of Doc Watson. I'll tell you what it was. I think in that very moment, I heard Doc Watson singing and playing Shady Grove on the banjo with that trance-like roll of the banjo going and this high, lonesome, bluesy sound. I wish I had a big, fine horse and the corn to feed him on, and Shady Grove to stay at home and feed him while I'm gone. Shady Grove, my... With so much heart and soul, I realized that even though Chinese culture is thousands and thousands, it's an ancient, ancient civilization, and our modern notion of America is not. Our culture is still filled with the ancient tones of, of culture from around the world. And you can hear that so clearly through the banjo from West Africa and the singing of Doc Watson that traveled here from Scotch-Irish and Celtic traditions. Uh, it's ancient, it's beautiful, it's profound, and it felt like it was worthy of sharing with my Chinese friends as something truly American and truly ancient. Washburn realized how America's musical traditions were brought here from older cultures and combined to create new art forms. Here's how she remembers that road trip in her TED Talk. I traveled down through Appalachia, and I, I learned a bunch of old American songs, and I ended up in Kentucky at the International Bluegrass Music Association Convention. And I was sitting in a hallway one night, and a couple girls came up to me, and they said, hey, do you want to jam? And I was like, sure. So I like picked up my banjo, and I nervously played like four songs that I actually knew with them. And a record executive walked up to me and invited me to Nashville, Tennessee to make a record. 
I don't care who you are. If you are offered a record deal out of the blue, you take it. It changed Washburn's life. She joined bands and toured the country, even played some Chinese songs on banjo. In 2005, a mutual friend introduced Washburn and Faye. Soon after, Washburn had a show near Faye's home in Colorado. And that day, they jammed a bit. And then she started singing a folk songs from Sichuan province. I was like, ah, oh, she knows the songs that I grew up singing. Brought me instantly back to my childhood. And, uh, and I thought, oh, that's so great because that's the song that I don't even have to learn. It's just like, it's in my heart, it's in my blood. Um, we started just playing very naturally and it was wonderful. It was kind of magical. Faye is so fun for me to play music with and I think in general just to have as a friend we spend a lot of our time together laughing This song from their album is called Who Says Women Aren't As Good As Men Where did that song come from? That is all Faye, I will tell you what One of the times we were together trying to think of different songs uh, to share with each other she was saying, oh my gosh I remember this time back in school in China when this girl stood up in class and sang this song and it was so badass and it was called Who Says Women Aren't As Good As Men and it's from an old Henan opera from the Mulan story about the woman warrior. This particular scene, she's with her other warriors, and they believe she's a man at this point, and she's one of the greatest warriors, and they have so much respect for him. Uh, And they're just all kind of complaining about women and how they really, you know, they don't offer much in the world. And uh, Right, they can't do this, can't do that. Right. (laughs) And she just says, "Uh uh-uh, let me tell you about women, you know? And so she starts going on this song that's really about women are badass. So my favorite part of the lyrics from this song translate to, Brother Lou, be reasonable. Who says women aren't incredible? While men fight for the country, unstoppable. Women weave at home, irreplaceable. And a bit later they sing, If you don't believe it, please look no elsewhere. Our shoes and socks, our clothes and cloths are all works of theirs. For all the Disney buffs out there, if you don't remember this song, I used this opportunity to re-familiarize myself with the 1998 animated version of Mulan. And the closest echo of this song comes in a tune called A Girl Worth Fighting For. All of Mulan's male army friends are singing about what kind of girl they want. A good cook, pretty eyes, that type of thing. And Mulan says, Uh, how about a girl who's got a brain, who always speaks her mind? Apparently, Disney did not get the memo that women are incredible. Anyway, the song Who Says Women Aren't As Good As Men stems from Faye's deep knowledge of China's regional folk music. Oh, definitely. Um, I First of all, when since I was a kid, I was always a fan of uh, traditional Chinese operas. And then when I got into the conservatory, uh, one of our requirements was to know at least 300 folk songs from studying one semester, and then we must memorize them. So they've been in my head forever. Faye's Foundation of Memorized Folk Songs offers tons of material for potential collaboration between her and Washburn. Because Faye says they aren't just thinking musically. They try to blend Chinese and Appalachian folk songs by story. 
Instead of thinking about like matching American folk song in a structure or key or plucking style,、uh, we actually thought about how people live from different cultures, and you know, because the emotions are really the same. When you search for love or sadness, versus okay,、uh, I have a song in G. Do you have another song in G? Like usually, it doesn't work very well. <laughs> we'll hear more of this story about the folk collaboration between Wu Fei and Abigail Washburn in just a minute. First, I'd like to share a message we received last week from a listener of Inside Appalachia from the other side of the globe. Hey, my name is Christopher Wood, and I currently reside and work as a teacher here in Beijing, China. I was born and raised in this beautiful little village called Patriot in southeastern Ohio, right across the river from、uh, Point Pleasant, West Virginia. I've been particularly thinking about home and about. All the different places, especially in West Virginia, that I'd go to. I think lately because I've been trying to get out and do a lot more activities, especially outdoors here in China,、uh, especially with hiking, and it's been really making me just think of the many different places that I often would visit, like Babcock State Park in West Virginia, New River Gorge area. Just recently. Since restrictions have been kind of loosening up here, little by little, we've been allowed to leave the city of Beijing and go to just the nearby mountain ranges. So I've been going to the the Yan Mountains to the northeast of Beijing, as well as the Jundu Mountains to the west,、uh, just to do some hiking, some all-day hikes、uh, with a, a small group of people here. And just recently, I got to go to Shaanxi Province, about two provinces over from Beijing, and got to do some amazing hiking in the highland areas of、uh, Wu Tai Shan, where there's five holy Buddhist uh, peaks uh, that people go、uh, regularly for、uh, for holy pilgrimages. Getting outside in the actual. Mountainous region of China, particularly here in northern China, is just absolutely amazing. Most days, depending on how early you go, if you go early in the mornings, you see a beautiful, just heavy fog, just kind of hovering over, you know, the mountain ranges. And it often makes me think of my late grandmother, who passed away during the first year I was in China as a child. We'd pass the the plateau region in southern Ohio, or in the mountains of West Virginia. We'd see those、uh, that fog rolling in, and she'd say, "Like, Christer, look,、uh, groundhogs are making coffee." It's really amazing getting to see some of the similar、uh, plant life when I'm going out about out in nature walks or some、uh, long-term hiking. You know, backcountry hiking.、Um, it just—it's just great seeing some of the same plant life that I can identify that that grows right around the Appalachian region back home, such as staghorn sumac as a type of tree,、uh, wild aster as a type of wildflower. I guess to kind of get my fill and. 
kind of mend the homesickness right now. I, I have been listening to a lot of the podcasts. I've been listening actually quite religiously to uh, Inside Appalachia. And I'm kind of pretty well established that I listen once a week to each new podcast that comes out. I've been trying to kind of backtrack and listen and catch up on any of the episodes I might have missed within the last, you know, the first few months that I came here to China. Another thing to note that just reminds me of home is the more you get outside of the cities here in, in mainland China and you get out more to the rural life in the countryside, it, the folks there, the people just remind me of the folks back home. Uh, especially in my home village there in Patriot and the surrounding area and some of the uh, the rural places that I hold so dear to myself out in West Virginia too. So I'm really thankful to everyone that keeps up these podcasts. Sooner or later, I'm really hoping that I can come back and start visiting again or even find something something to be innovative there and possibly even relocate there. I'll keep listening to you all, and you all take care. Walking down a dirt road on my way back home Looking for a place I can call my own So cool to hear from you, Chris, and I hope one day you find yourself back here in Appalachia. We tend to assume we don't share much with people in places on the other side of the globe. Clearly, that's not true, as Chris illustrates... And as we've been hearing in the story of two collaborating musicians, there's always common ground. Let's get back to learning what happens when Appalachian and Chinese folk music come together. Lizzie Peabody spoke with Abigail Washburn and Wu Fei about how they combine their two instruments, the banjo and guzhong, to produce a sound that's both timeless and also reflects thousands of years of history from different parts of the world. So I want to talk about this song, Banjo Guzhong Pickin' Girls because it is a traditional Appalachian folk song, but your treatment of it is anything but traditional. Going around this world, baby mine. Going around this world, baby mine. So your version starts pretty traditionally with Abigail singing in English. Going around this world, baby mine. And then you hear the banjo come in after about 20 seconds. And then you announce that you're off to China, and you get phase Guzheng. And the sound of the banjo and the Guzheng really blend melodically. Like, after hearing this version, I want no other versions of this song. When did you first realize that these two instruments play so nicely together? Uh, as soon as we met. <laughs> yeah, I think, um, I, you know, now Faye and I both had gotten to collaborate with so many musicians before we met each other. So I think we were already programmed to know that this was very likely going to work. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. Plucked strings are already very uh, resonant um, on their own, and uh, I just think it can't go wrong, I mean, to begin with. And then 
you put them together, it just covers a lot of、uh, sounds, like a string band on its own. A guitar has six strings. A fiddle and a bass both have four. But with 26 strings between them, Fay and Washburn alone are kind of a two-man string band. So while we're on the subject of the guzheng, I mean this is this is an audio program. So I'm going to give you Faye the challenge of explaining to our listeners who may not be familiar with the guzheng, which I think is probably most, because before this interview I had no idea what it was.、Um, can you give us just a quick introduction and sort of paint a mental picture of your instrument? Sure.、Um, the guzheng has about、uh, 2,500 years of history. And、uh, it's、um, quite long. It's,、uh, it's looks like a flat harp and sits on two stands. And so sometimes you can just sit on a on a, key, a regular keyboard stand. And it's about five feet five in total length, and has twenty one strings. And then each string underneath there's a bridge that that supports the strings. If you can imagine an upright bass, the bridge is the piece of wood that pushes the strings away from the instrument's body. The guzheng has 21 mini bridges that sit in different places and help control the string's tension, and therefore the sound that each string makes. So I will go、um, give you a short demonstration from the low one and to the way all the way to the high. Wow, that's quite a range. Oh, I'm gonna tune that. Sometimes the, the the thin high strings can break. I I yeah, my whole I've been playing since I was a kid. I've been stabbed. I have too. Actually, I I yeah, I played the cello up through college and tuning. I've had a, a string break across my face, and it just like you get that whip on the cheek, and then at the end there's the puncture from the whiplash. Oh man, <laughs> it can be very dangerous. And while she plays the guzheng, Fei wears finger picks. I wear seven finger picks,、um, four on my right hand and three on my left hand. Like basically whatever you can do on a harp, you can do on the guzheng.、Um, a lot of very fast or tremolo or、uh, finger roll, or playing like、uh, low low. So the guzheng's 21 strings combined with the banjo's five strings to create a new type of folk music. But Washburn points out that that's what American folk musicians have been doing for centuries. There's so much about our folk music that、um, comes from our immigrant cultures that it can be quite hard to trace it back. Because one sort of myth of America is that we're new, that we're invented, and、um, It's just simply、uh, not true. We're based on immigrant cultures from around the world that we've inherited culture from, and although we've come together in a really new way, in- including our native people, so there's there's a lot there that's imbuing our identity with、um, very old folk music. Fay and Washburn say that the folk music they lean on comes from centuries of human hopes, fears, and desires to live a peaceful and productive life. And our basic drives on Earth are to. Stay alive, which means we need food and shelter and love. These basic drives are the things that we need to we need to come back to. And I'm I'm so glad that Faye and I can make an offering that's so deeply connected to the heart of our commonalities,、uh, because music, although 
I so want to protect the uniqueness of our each of cultural heritage. I also want to see how clearly these resonances and these tones come from a common place of human longing. And it's these same resonances that continue to vibrate from our past all around the world. Faye and Washburn blend this cultural inheritance in a new way musically, but the stories they tell will continue to speak to us well into the future. Two fierce women for sure. On our website, we've posted a pretty epic music video of Abigail Washburn and Wu Fei performing The Roving Cowboy. Find it at wvpublic.org. Up next, as a teenager, Rosemary Ketchum survived a house fire, then moved to a new city, Wheeling, West Virginia. When she arrived, she saw a sign that said, The Friendly City. And I took it to heart immediately, and I thought, you know, you, you got to sink or swim. You know, you are in high school, you are homeschooled, people think that's weird. You are trans, people think that's definitely weird. So you don't have a choice. You have to dive in. You have to make it worth it. Her story is featured in a new documentary called Rosemary. We hear more after the break. You're inside Appalachia. I'm Mason Adams. We'll be right back. Boys, wouldn't it be something if I could make the sun rise? Before the cold, dark, anxious morning arrives. I could take the reins to tame the vicious beasts I ride. If I could stop and start time without warning. And if I never admit I could do such things. Would those things go undone? And if I could ease my grip from what I desire most. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Anyone who grew up in Appalachia knows strong women. Growing up near the Virginia-West Virginia state line, I think of Carolee McGuire, who cowed even the surliest sixth graders in my elementary school into learning social studies. Maybe because of her, I've always associated fierce women with politics. Even so, there's no denying that record numbers of women are running for office, especially here in Appalachia. In our next story, we meet 26-year-old Rosemary Ketchum, who just became the first transgender person in West Virginia to be elected to office. 
She's now a city council member in Wheeling, West Virginia, where she assists in efforts to clean up the city and helps residents who are struggling with food insecurity and homelessness. The film follows Rosemary for a year as she campaigned for city council. Let's have a listen to a scene from the film where she explains why she's decided to run for local office. When a person who grew up in Wheeling, uh, raising a family, working full-time, can no longer afford to live in the city they grew up in, something needs to change. When uh, we have folks at record numbers living on our streets and under our bridges without even access to basic restroom facilities after 9 p.m., something needs to change. And when my neighbor, out of work for months, finally finds a job he is capable of and that could propel him out of poverty, he doesn't apply because he knows our public transit system does not run after 5 p.m. When these are the stories we're hearing, something needs to change. And call me an idealist, some people do, uh, but I believe that change is most important and most possible wherever the ground is already broken. It will necessitate an entire community determined to make a difference. And folks, that's us. That is us. Uh, and so I understand that we don't get what we don't fight for, and the friendly city is really worth fighting for. That's what this campaign is about. That's what my life has been about for years. And that is why I'm running for city council. And I hope that you'll help me get there. Thank you. Producers Corey Nollinger and Chuck Klein followed Rosemary to document her campaign. I caught up with them to hear more about this story. Let's maybe start with the subject of it. Um, tell us about Rosemary, the subject of this documentary. Rosemary is one of the most energetic people I've ever met in my entire life. Very outgoing, um, very, very bright, um, and yeah, very charismatic. Charismatic is, I think, the best way to describe Rosemary. She's the real deal. Uh, out of the adversities that she grew from, she understands other human beings so clearly. She knew she was trans um, really early, elementary school. Her parents clued right into that, pulled her from school, um, and educated her intensely. And she uses her education every day as a shield and as a forward uh, attack. She is an incredible inspiration, should be an incredible inspiration for anybody else that is trying to work these kind of issues out in their head um, against a society that is not so sure about it. You, you gave more of her sort of background, personal story in that, what you just said, than we get in the documentary. A lot of filmmakers would have put that front and center, and yet it's sort of backgrounded in this documentary. Was that a deliberate decision? Super deliberate. The way I keep describing this film is that it is about a young community organizer who happens to be trans, not a trans young community organizer. The thing that's inspiring to Rosemary's story, to me, is that she, I mean, she just wants, she is somebody who is young who wants to see her community grow and her community be better. I, it would have felt predatory to focus on, 
on her transition and predatory to focus on um, on her her personal experience with that just because I, I feel like that that just makes it a lot easier to to kind of just boil her down to her gender identity, as she says in the documentary. Um, her campaign wasn't about her gender identity. Who she is isn't her gender identity. I think for us to have focused on that would have been a great disservice to her and our viewers. Can you set up for us the opening of this documentary and how we meet Rosemary? So um, the opening scene of the documentary is uh, Rosemary at homelessness encampments in the city of Wheeling with uh, Project Hope, which is a um, street medicine organization in Wheeling that provides um, medical care to those experiencing homelessness. Um, And they had invited her. They had found out that she was was considering running, and they invited her out uh, to see to see that side of things. Um, the the first shot of the movie is her talking to uh, a video that she ended up posting to Facebook about what she sees there. Hey folks, it's Rosemary. I am in Wheeling uh, at an encampment. I'm hanging out with the folks from Project Hope. I want to show you uh, some of the things we've got going on. Um, this is a tent. Uh, there are three here. Uh, and this isn't the first one we've seen today. This one seems to be vacant, um, at least for now. Uh, and I found a pride flag sitting in the dirt that I gave out not too long ago at our, at our pride festival. It's kind of bittersweet. I remember when we had our house fire in 2010, we were homeless as a family uh, for months and months. And it was, uh, it was jarring, and it was, you know, embarrassing. I was 16 years old. I, I remember it like nothing else. And I don't think I would have told anybody what was going on um, during that time of our lives. And so I couldn't imagine reaching the point where you would tell anyone. She said somebody cut it. Yeah, they cut the screen. Well, first they just cut the regular door, and then they cut the screen They cut that the second time. I mean, why do you think they... Retaliation, or... We don't do anything to anybody. To see what they can get. Wow. And And we had a lock on our door. At first, like, I kind of pulled that off. Yeah. We had a lock on our door. Did they steal anything? Do you know? Everything out of there. Wow. The tablets, the cell phone, like, mainly all my clothes, all the expensive stuff we had hidden in our tent. That's unbelievable. So this is everything you have. Everything, everything you absolutely you own. Since we to be able to see the way our most vulnerable community members live. It's, uh, it's upsetting, it's humbling, um, but it makes me even more determined to uh, create a city where uh, we care for and uh, seek to help and support uh, even our most vulnerable folks. If you care about your community, if you care about the people uh, that surround you, you cannot pretend like you are making a difference unless you are. I felt they're watching the film like there was, there was, you know, it's about two main characters and then their interactions between each other. And one is Rosemary and the other is Wheeling, the city itself and its people. And uh, Corey, you talked a little bit about your, your connection growing up in Wheeling. When you all approached this as filmmakers, what were you hoping to capture of the city? I mean... It's kind in in a way it's kind of just this this love letter to Wheeling for me like in this idea that like um 
while it does have its faults, while it does have all of these, um, well, while there are definitely things that can be better, um, it's still a beautiful place. Um, and I didn't, I didn't really want to, I, I guess Rosemary's hopefulness for Wheeling is also something that, that I can in, it very much so relate to. I think Wheeling in the documentary hopefully comes off as a, as a flawed character, but a, but a lovable one as well. I love Wheeling. I, I, I remember distinctly one of the very first times coming into the city from Bridgeport to Wheeling Island, uh, crossing that bridge and uh, seeing, a, seeing a little sign that was rusted and bent that said, The Friendly City. I remember seeing it as a kid, as a 16-year-old, and going, The Friendly City? That's where I am now. And I took it to heart immediately. And I thought, you know, you, you got to sink or swim. You know, you are in high school, you are homeschooled, people think that's weird. You are trans, people think that's definitely weird. So you don't have a choice. You have to dive in, you have to make it worth it. Uh, and you're in the friendly city, so it's possible. To see how Rosemary's campaign for city council unfolded this summer, check out the full documentary. It's a half hour and you can stream it for free at wvpublic.org forward slash rosemary. The film will also air on PBS stations this month. For our final story, we head to Roanoke, Virginia, where a community newspaper is still thriving after 80 years. The Roanoke Tribune is a family-owned African-American newspaper led by a powerhouse of a woman, Claudia Whitworth, now in her 90s. Her newspaper's mission is making and recording black history since 1939. Earlier this year, as the pandemic was just starting to unfold, I went to see the newspaper staff in action and learn how they've survived all these years. Wednesday nights are the busiest part of the week at the Roanoke Tribune. That's the day that 4,500 copies of the weekly paper show up from the printer. It's all hands on deck as the staff gathers the fold, label, and stack each paper so that they can go to the post office before the day's last mail run. The Roanoke Tribune isn't just a community paper. It's a family paper, owned and operated by a family that's been doing this for four generations. And three generations are here this evening. Claudia Shaw is the youngest to have picked up the family business. Probably started about five or six folding papers. Her mother, Eva Shaw Gill, started working at the paper as a child, too. Most kids have chores to wash dishes and make up their bed. We had to come to the Tribune. Then there's Stan Hale. Eva's older brother. Man to man. They say you look like a machine when you get started. Stands the papers spark blood, and he's really fast at folding papers. Been everything. Won all the hats from time to time. Been here since, uh, well, actually, I started when I was about 11 years old. In the eye of the storm stands publisher Claudia Whitworth, age 92. 
Claudia, spelled with a C, or C. Laudia to distinguish her from her granddaughter, K. Laudia, started in the newspaper business in 1945. She bought the paper from her father in 1971 and continues to publish today. Her philosophy? To shine a positive light on Roanoke's black community. Always the positive. I said no negative. It's like a letter from home. <laughs> Claudia's focus on positivity has occasionally brought her into conflict with her peers in the publishing industry. She remembers going to a national conference of black-owned and operated newspapers several years ago and getting into a debate with a tabloid publisher from the West Coast. And I had to question him. I said, every front page of his paper would have murders, rapes, something. And I said, why on earth would you do something like this when that's what people think of us anyhow? You know, I challenged him in the national conference, and he said, because good news doesn't sell. And I said, okay, I'm going to prove you wrong. And none of them exist. Every one of them are out of And my little good news don't sell is still out here <laughs> and hadn't missed the issue. Claudia's father, the Reverend F.E. Alexander, founded the Roanoke Tribune in 1939. Claudia went to work there six years later, but she quickly grew frustrated, partly because her father limited what she could do because she was a woman. So she started a pattern of moving to work on black newspapers elsewhere, then coming back home. That's how she learned the business. Claudia vividly remembers the joy she found in the physical process of setting type and arranging letters onto the page. When she started out, that process involved arranging molten lead alloys in a linotype machine. When they cooled, they'd form slugs that would be used to press ink onto newsprint paper. You dump all of it in, and you put the fire under it, and it all melts, and then the dirt all floats to the top. And I would had a thing that you skim the dirt off, and that just pure metal, just shiny as new, every week. And it just had sort of a spiritual thing to it, how you can skim that dust off and just be pure again. They look like gold, gold bars. Uh-huh. I loved it. I loved everything about it. <laughs> Claudia worked at newspapers in Dayton, Cleveland, Columbus, Ohio, and in New York City. But she never forgot where she came from. Well, my intention was always to come back and take care of the, my own paper, but I just needed experience. Claudia took full control of the Roanoke Tribune in 1971 when she bought it from her father. She since has forged a powerful legacy with the Roanoke Tribune. For the nearly 30% of Roanokers who identify as African-American, the Tribune serves as a positive reflection of their community. She's kept it going even through a time when newspapers around the country are struggling to stay in business. Well, she's a force of nature. That's exactly what she is. She's a larger-than-life personality. She is a very driven uh, woman. She always has been. That's Reginald Sharif, a political science professor at Radford University, who grew up in Roanoke and literally wrote the book on the city's black history. The Tribune has been a consistent presence his entire life. Yeah, well, I don't know when I don't remember it because uh, we received the subscription at home and it was a way for everybody in Roanoke to keep up with what was going on in the black community, but also for those who had moved away. So at a time when many African-American people felt invisible in our communities, uh, those black newspapers, both, both locally and, and nationally, 
kept us informed. And it kept readers informed, even during difficult periods. Beginning in the 1950s, Roanoke City government demolished dozens of neighborhoods' blocks to make way for a new interstate, civic center, and other redevelopment. Urban renewal also destroyed much of Roanoke's Black Business District, a longtime cultural hub that had attracted touring jazz musicians, as well as pioneering filmmaker Oscar Micheaux. The Roanoke Tribune was located there, too. Claudia remembers how she learned that the Tribune was being torn down. My phone rings at 8 o'clock in the morning. They said, do you know they bulldozed in the Tribune? They bulldozed the Tribune and everything over that night. I come there, my stuff is all in the sidewalk and everything. They had bulldozed everything. Even through all that, Claudia never missed an issue. She had kept photosetting equipment at home and so was able to keep publishing, even after her building was destroyed. The Roanoke Tribune persisted, moving to its current location on Melrose Avenue. They've adopted new technology over the years, too, incorporating computers and publishing not only in print but online. It takes an iron will and high standards to keep a newspaper going, especially through all that. You can see that in how Claudia's raised her children and grandchildren. One thing she's always been on me about is my grammar and how I speak. Um, she's on how I walk, my posture. Everybody about that. Oh, yeah. about that. It's old school. What, what, remember I told you I moved away I was gone for 15 years and I used to write my mom letters every week and when I get home she has all my letters marked circled edited, edited. Mm-hmm. so <laughs> I said instead of her being happy to hear from me I gotta see all of this pile of mail edited you should have said this you should have used correctly. that word yes your past participles <laughs> Oh, Lord. That story about the Roanoke Tribune aired this summer. Four months later, I'm happy to report that the newspaper is still publishing. It survived Jim Crow laws. It survived the destruction of its building during urban renewal. And now it's surviving the pandemic and the death of print. What's its secret? I think the answer can be found on Wednesday nights, when the staff gathers to process papers and deliver them to their community. This isn't just a newspaper. It's a family. Growing up in the mountains, I saw fierce women everywhere I looked. From my great-aunt Willie Sue, who served as a medic in World War II, to Ms. McGuire at Sharon Elementary School, who drilled a generation of Allegheny County kids in history and politics. That tradition stretches back into history, whether you're talking Mother Jones in West Virginia's mining wars or Mary Draper Ingalls, who was kidnapped but escaped and walked hundreds of miles across Appalachia to get back home. In a year that's forcing us all to be a little bit more brave, bold, and fierce, I hear a lot to learn from the women featured on the show today. Abigail Washburn and Wu Fei bring different folk traditions together in harmony, in ways that sound like they were always meant to be. Rosemary Ketchum's love for Wheeling and its people remind us to fight for where we live. Claudia Whitworth's decades at the helm of the Roanoke Tribune illustrate the power of family, persistence, and positivity. They all show us we don't have to be mean or ornery to be fiercer. We can be kind, listen to others, and reflect back what we see and hear. These women are making a stand for what they believe in. A long and rich tradition here inside Appalachia.
Until next time, thanks for joining us as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the Side Door podcast, which is produced by the Smithsonian with support from PRX. Our theme music is by Mac Jackford. Other music this week was provided by Abigail Washburn and Wu Fei, Dinosaur Burps, and Adrian Niles. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Glennis Board edited our show this week. Our audio mixer is Patrick Stevens. Xander Alloy also helped produce our show this week. You can find us on Twitter at In Appalachia. You can also send an email to Inside Appalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash Inside Appalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There, you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia, with career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu.